Thank you for listening to this week's podcast from Victory Baptist Church in Hope Mills, North Carolina. I pray that God uses this message to help you worship God, strengthen your relationship, and glorify Him. Without further ado, here is this week's message. Looks like we are live. Um, So, let's see. All right. Thank you for coming in this morning for uh, in the building, or if you're tuning in online, thank you for joining us this morning. If you go ahead and open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 13. Uh, today we're going to finish the book of Nehemiah. We're continuing our uh, journey through the post-exilic texts. Um, and after we finish Nehemiah, we will only have Malachi left in this series. Um, and we're going to focus on Malachi for our uh, Christmas series. If you're tuning in for the first time, uh, you can listen to all of the sermons throughout the series on our podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, the link to the podcast is down in the description. Uh, but this morning, like I said, we're in Nehemiah, um, and we are going to be in chapter 13, and I'm titling this sermon, Problem Solver. All right, Problem Solver. And the main idea is that God's Word provides the solution for us. God's Word provides the solution. Um, and I kind of have that broken down into three parts. There's the return of Tobiah. Then we see um, solving problems, and then the final section is uh, remembrance prayers. Um, I say sections. It's not really sections of the text this week. Normally, I try to break up the text into three different sections, um, but it's um, couldn't quite break it up that way this week. Um, Got to try to be faithful to um, God's Word and the outline that it provides for me. Um, I can't force my own outline onto it. I have to follow um, the Word. So I had to change the way my, I typically do my outline. Um, hopefully, it'll go all right for us. But let me go ahead and review a little bit for us. Um, There's a a bit of a time jump in this chapter, so I think a review will be helpful. Um, We see this from that timestamp in verse 6. Nehemiah says, I had returned to King Artaxerxes of Babylon in the 32nd year of his reign. So in the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes. So let's quickly review what's happened so far um, before this. Um, In the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, Nehemiah heard that the Jews... Um, they had not rebuilt the city or its walls and that they were in danger. Four months later, um, he gets permission from the king to go to Jerusalem and oversee the building project. And then scholars estimate that the journey to Jerusalem took him about four months. Um, The Jews start rebuilding the wall three days after Nehemiah arrives, and it takes them 52 days to complete it. So let's go ahead and round that up to two months. So that makes it about 10 months from the opening of the book until the time that the, the, the wall is finished. And then they spent about two months reading the books of Moses, um, what we have as the first five books of the Bible. They were studying them, they were applying them, and repenting from their sins. This all culminated with a big celebration where they dedicated the wall and gave thanks to God for his protection and his provision. So in all, the first 12 chapters of Nehemiah cover about one year, starting in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. Now, in the 13th chapter, we hear that Nehemiah had returned to the king Artaxerxes in the 32nd year of his reign. So that's 12 years later. Uh, We want to know what happened during those 11 years. Well, we don't get a whole lot of detail about what happened in those 11 years, but we do get a little bit of it here at the beginning of this chapter. Um, During those 11 years where Nehemiah served as the governor, when he was there, after the wall was rebuilt, He kind of served as the governor, and um, he tried to lead the the Jews in following God's law, but then after he left, what happened? Well, we don't really know exactly. Um, And the events at the beginning of chapter 13 happen at some point during Nehemiah's absence. So I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we'll get into the text. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we open up your word, God, I ask that you will show us how we are not like you. Show us your character and show us your will. Help us to become more like you through studying and applying your word. 
sanctify us through your holy word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, so I'll go ahead and get started here. In chapter 13, verse 1, it says, At that time, the book of Moses was read publicly to the people. The command was found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, because they did not meet the Israelites with food and water. Instead, they hired Balaam against them to curse them. But our God turned uh, turned the curse into a blessing. When they heard the law, they separated all those of mixed descent from Israel. So the law that they're referring to comes to us in Deuteronomy 23, verses 3 through 5. And it forbids the Ammonites and Moabites from living among the Israelites. And this was because of an incident that happened in Numbers, chapters 22 to 24. Um, if you are on our group Bible reading plan, we heard um, uh, Peter reference that again this morning. Uh, in this or in today's reading, um, but this is when Moses was leading the Israelites to the promised land, and they were passing through the land of Moab. Now Balak, the king of Moab, was scared of the Israelites, so he hires Balaam to come and pronounce a curse over the Israelites. So Balaam he says, "Well, God's told me not to do this, but I'm going to try it anyway." So as they're traveling back to Moab, Balaam's donkey stops and turns back and so, turns back and looks at him and, and talks to him. Now. God speaking through a donkey. Hopefully you get a better message every Sunday morning, but I don't know. Um, but in that, we see when, when uh, Balaam does get to Moab, and he looks out over the field that contains the Israelites, and he goes to pronounce a curse over the Israelites. But instead, when he, when he opens his mouth, a curse doesn't come out. He blesses the Israelites. And this happens four times. And every time, Balak, the king of the, the Moabites, gets really upset with Moab, the prophet, or not Moab, um, with Balaam, the prophet. It's really upset with him. He says, I hired you to come out here and curse them, but every time you open your mouth, you bless them. But the, um, Balak, the king, is still not willing to let the Israelites come through their land peacefully. He's not willing to give them food and water. So instead, the Israelites, they just kind of go along their way. Um, but God tells them not to associate with the Moabites and the um, Ammonites. So in accordance with this law that we read, the Israelites in Nehemiah chapter 13 are removing, uh, removing those Moabite and Ammonite, um, those of that descent from their land, except for one special case that we get to read about when we keep reading. Picking up in verse 4, maybe, there we go. It says, now before this, the priest Eliashib had put in charge of the storerooms of the house of God, or the priest Eliashib had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of God. He was a relative of Tobiah and had prepared a large room for him where they had previously stored the grain offerings, the frankincense, the articles, and the tenths of grain, new wine, and fresh oil prescribed for the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, along with the contributions for the priests. So here we see Tobiah. Now Tobiah, this was Nehemiah's enemy that we talked about a lot in the first half of this book, Tobiah the Ammonite. He opposed Nehemiah at every step of the way making the rebuilding process really difficult. Um, he would make threats. He would spread rumors. He plotted to infiltrate the city, and he even attacked the Jews who lived outside the city. We learned that in chapter 6 that Tobiah is related to Eliashib through marriage. They were in-laws, but now the law of Moses says that Tobiah is an outlaw. I think there's some country song about your in-laws being outlaws, but uh, because of this relationship, the priest in charge of the storerooms basically took a bunch of the room that was supposed to be set aside for housing all the materials to support the ministry of the temple. He cleaned all that out and made a nice little penthouse suite for Tobiah. So now, not only was this Ammonite illegally allowed fellowship with the Israelites, he was given a lavish apartment within the temple complex. All right, so let's keep reading. 
Picking up in verse 6. While all this was happening, I was not in Jerusalem because I had returned to King Artaxerxes of Babylon in the 32nd year of his reign. It was only later that I asked the king for a leave of absence so I could return to Jerusalem. Then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done on behalf of Tobiah by providing him a room in the courts of God's house. I was greatly displeased and threw all of Tobiah's household possessions out of the room. I ordered that the rooms be purified, and I had the articles of God restored there, along with the grain offering and frankincense. Now, one of the things that I like about Nehemiah, he's a man of action. When he hears about a problem, he takes the necessary steps required to fix that problem. When he returned to Jerusalem, he found Tobiah's apartment, and he gave him no eviction notice. He just kicked him out right away. Then he went through the process to ceremonially cleanse the room, and then he restored it to its rightful use. In this case, Nehemiah goes straight to action without any delay. He doesn't contemplate over what's the next step, what's the right thing to do. He doesn't do that. He knows already what it is to do. So remember, this is kind of in contrast to what Nehemiah did at the beginning of the book. He took four months to pray, to plan, to prepare before bringing his concern to the king to ask permission to leave. Here, in this case, there's no reason for Nehemiah to take that time to step back and say, hmm, what should I do next? He already knows what he's supposed to do next. So that action plan for him is obvious. Let me give us a little lesson here for this. Uh, In our walk with God, as we become more spiritually mature, there will be problems that we encounter that we don't need to stop and make a plan and contemplate the next step or seek advice. When we have an active prayer life and are reading and applying the scriptures and living in disciple-making relationships, we already know what God's will is for our lives, what he wants us to do in certain situations. Now, there will be other times, especially problems that are more complex or we lack certain authority, where we do need to take some time to pray, to plan, and to prepare or to seek advice before we take any action. Nehemiah, in this case, he's able to take quick, quick action to solve this problem because it goes directly against God's command. Nehemiah knows exactly what to do because he knows God's will. He knows God's commands that he's given in his word. He, so he has an easy solution because he's already in tune with God's will. And see, this is all about holiness. Being clean, being separated from evil. The Jews have learned the hard way, and all of us have too, that We cannot attain holiness. We are sinful. We fall into temptation. Uh, Left to our own power, there is no way that we can attain holiness. There's no way that we can be holy. Now, this reminds me of a conversation that I had one day up at Cumberland Coffee Roasters. There's a gentleman who goes up there a lot. Um, He's there almost every time I go, and he'll sit there for a few hours and enjoy his coffee and some conversation. He's not going quite as often or staying quite as long nowadays um, because of um, COVID, but he's still there pretty frequently. Um, I was having a conversation with him one day several years ago, and we got talking. Now, he, um, he follows a religion that is based off of Hinduism. Right? So the basic idea of Hinduism is you're going to live your life, and at the end you're going to die. And then based on how well you lived your life, you'll be reincarnated either into a better life or into a worse life. And eventually... After you've lived enough good lives and you've been reincarnated into better and better lives, if you continue to live a good enough life, you will achieve nirvana. And that's where you get ejected from this painful circle of life and you can be one with the universe, the great universal power. The problem with that is that we all see it in our lives every day. We can't hardly take two steps without doing something dumb and doing something sinful. We can't take two steps without going against God's will. 
The problem with that is that every step along the way, we recognize that we are not holy. And if that is truth, then there is no way that I will ever be ejected from this painful cycle of life and be reunited with the great oneness that is the universe. And see, that's where Christianity is different. Christianity recognizes that we can't do it on our own. Christianity recognizes that we cannot be holy. And so Jesus came and lived a holy life. He lived that perfect life, and he died on the cross to take the penalty for our sin, earning our holiness. When we place our faith in him, he gives us his holiness, and we can be reunited with the Father. We are reconciled with God. That's that longing that these Hindu religions are hoping for. That's what they're, that's what they're seeking is that reun, uh, reunification with the Father. Or not reunification, but reconciliation with the Father. They know there's something missing, and they know that there, something has to be done to fix it. The problem is, is that they're trying to do it on their own. We recognize we can't do it on our own, so Jesus came and did it for us. That's why he had to come. It's why he had to be sacrificed on the cross. Through the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit, we can work toward being more holy each day. That's the process that's called sanctification, being made more holy. A big part of church membership is sanctification. We work together and we hold each other accountable to becoming more holy each and every day. And speaking of that process of sanctification and, and helping others to become more holy or being held accountable to others, when we keep reading, we'll see that Nehemiah takes some tough action to hold the Jews accountable in many other situations. Now, this is the section that I'm calling pro, uh, Solving Problems. And this is a long section I'm about to read, but I'm going to go back through afterwards and kind of pick out some, some key verses. Start in verse 10. He says, I also found out that because the portions of the Levites had not been given, each of the Levites and the singers performing the service had gone back to his own field. Therefore, I rebuked the officials asking, why has the house of God been neglected? I gathered the Levites and singers together and stationed them at their posts. Then all Judah brought a tenth of the grain, new wine, and fresh oil into the storehouses. I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses the priests Shelemiah, the scribe Zadok, and Padiah of the Levites, with Hanan, son of Zechur, son of Mataniah, to assist them, because they were considered trustworthy. They were responsible for the distribution to their colleagues. Remember me for this, my God, and don't erase the deeds of faithful love I have done for the house of my God and for its services." At that time, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath. They were also bringing in stores of grain and loading them on donkeys, along with wine, grapes, and figs. All kinds of goods were being brought before Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, so I warned them against selling any food on that day. The Tyrians living there were importing fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem. I rebuked the, noble, the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same, so that our God brought all this disaster on us and on, our, and on this city? And now you're rekindling his anger against Israel by profaning the Sabbath. When the shadows began to fall on the city gates of Jerusalem, just before the Sabbath, I gave orders that the city gates be closed and not opened until after the Sabbath. I posted some of my men at the gate, at the gates so that no goods could enter during the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and, and those who sell all kinds of goods camped outside Jerusalem, but I warned them, why are you camping in front of the wall? If you do it again, I'll use force against you. After that, they did not come again on the Sabbath. Then I instructed the Levites to purify themselves and guard the city gate in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, my God, and look on me with love or look on me with compassion according to the abundance of your faithful love. 
In those days, I also saw Jews who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples, but could not speak Hebrew. I rebuked them, cursed them, beat some of their men, and pulled out their hair. I forced them to take an oath before God and said, You must not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters as wives for your sons or for, for your sons or yourselves. Didn't King Solomon and Israel sin in matters like this? There was not a king like him among many nations. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Yet foreign women drew him into sin. Why then should, he, should we hear about you doing all this terrible evil and acting unfaithfully against our God by marrying foreign women? Even one of the sons of Jehoiada, son of the high priest Eliashib, had become a son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite, so I drove him away from me. Remember me, or re- remember them, my God, for defiling the priesthood as well as the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. So I purified them from everything foreign and assigned specific duties to each of the priests and Levites. I also assigned for the donation of wood at the appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, my God, with favor. Now, again, I know that was a large chunk, but what we see in all of that is very um, thematically repetitive. Nehemiah finds a problem, and Nehemiah solves the problem. From verse 10 through the end of the chapter, Nehemiah encounters clear violations of God's command and takes decisive steps to correct them. But before we dig into each one of these, I want to remind everyone of the vow that the Jews took back in chapter 10. Back in chapter 10, the Jews vowed to keep the law of God. They vowed to keep the Sabbath holy by not buying from foreign merchants on the Sabbath. They vowed to provide the materials for temple service. They vowed to sacrifice their first fruits to Yahweh through the temple. They vowed to provide for the priests and other temple workers. And finally, they vowed not to neglect the house of God. Now, in that sermon, I warned that the Jews were going to fail at all of those. And now we have seen all of those failures. Verses 10 to 13, the Jews have neglected the house of God, specifically not providing for the Levites and other temple workers. And so they had to leave the temple and they couldn't do their ministry because they had to go back to their own fields to provide for themselves. So Nehemiah has all of Judah bring supplies to the temple and storehouses and sets competent leadership over them. And then in verses 15 to 22, the Jews are failing to keep the Sabbath. This is actually happening in two ways. They're going out and doing physical labor, during, um, and they're doing business with foreigners on the Sabbath day. So Nehemiah reminds the Jews that this was one of the reasons that they were sent off into exile in the first place. He also keeps the city gates locked and threatens the foreign merchants who come to do business on the Sabbath, and eventually they stop coming. And then in verses 23 to 28, the Jews were failing to keep themselves separate from the foreigners. They had intermarried with foreigners. Uh, this was a big part of their holiness. Now this... A lot of people, a lot of uh, contemporary scholars will look at this passage or similar passages and point to the Bible and say that, well, uh, the Christian God is a racist or Christians are racist because of this and that. This isn't about race. It's not about racism. It's about spiritual protection. See, throughout the Old Testament, Jews are told not to marry foreign wives, but not because of their race. It was because of their religion. God knew that if they intermarried with these foreign lands or with these foreign wives, that they would bring their religion with them, and they would be tempted to stray away from worshiping God alone. And Nehemiah points to King Solomon as the example of this exact same sin. Now, you may remember that Zechariah dealt with this exact same problem before Nehemiah even came to Jerusalem, and then Nehemiah had to deal with it again after the wall was completed. 
So now, for the third time, the post-exilic community must cleanse themselves from this same sin. Nehemiah sends all the foreigners away and punishes the Jews who are responsible for this sin. In each of these situations, Nehemiah takes decisive action because he knows God's word. He's studied God's word and he's spent time in prayer seeking God's will. Each of, the, each of these sins go directly against God's commands and even against the vow that the Jews took just three chapters ago. Similarly, like I said earlier, when you're studying and applying God's word and spending time with him in prayer, you will find that some problems have simple solutions. Not necessarily because you're so smart, but because you are so fluent in God's word and in that state of constant prayer where God can work through you much easier. Now, I'm not saying that all problems are going to be this easy because there are some very complex problems in our world. But the more that we grow in God, the more that we know his word, the more that we depend on him for every decision that we make, the more of our problems we find have simple biblical solutions. Right. Now, in the last portion of this sermon, we're going to take a look at what's called the remembrance prayers. There are four of them in this chapter. And that happens in verse 14, verse 22, verse 29, and verse 31. So verse 14 says, Remember me for this, my God, and don't erase the deeds of faithful love I have done for the house of my God and for its services. So Nehemiah offers this prayer um, after he restored the provision for the temple and for the priests and for the other temple workers. And then verse 22 Nehemiah prays, Remember me for this also, my God, and look on me with compassion according to the abundance of your faithful love. So this one came after Nehemiah restored the Sabbath practices. And then in verse 29, Nehemiah says, Remember, re <laughs> Nehemiah says, Remember them, my God, for defiling the priesthood as well as the covenant of the priests and the Levites. And that, one, uh, that, pr that prayer came after Nehemiah discovered that one of the high priest's grandchildren was married to Sanballat's daughter. Now, Sanballat was one of those other enemies of Nehemiah that we read about earlier in the chapter. So not only was this sinful, he was, uh, Sanballat was one of the most oppositional neighbors toward Nehemiah and the rebuilding project. So this particular marriage put the post-exilic community there in Jerusalem at grave danger, at a high risk. And in the last remembrance prayers in verse 31, Nehemiah says, Remember me, my God, with favor. This, com this one comes at the end after Nehemiah has restored the priesthood and its provision. Now, there are two other remembrance prayers in this book. Um, the first one was in chapter 5, verse 19. Nehemiah says, Remember me favorably, my God, for all that I have done for this people. And then the second one was in chapter 6, verse 14. Nehemiah says, Rem uh, My God, remember Tobiah and Sanballat for what they have done, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the other prophets who wanted to intimidate me. Now, all of these prayers, all six of these remembrance prayers, are an allusion to the blessings and curses connected to God's covenant with Israel. So an allusion, not illusion, right? An illusion would be something that you think you see that's not really there, but an allusion, starting with an A, allusion, that's uh, referencing an earlier text or an earlier uh, event that had happened. So all six of these prayers, Nehemiah is alluding to God's covenant with Israel. God said, if you follow my will, if you follow my word, if you follow my law, I will provide for you and I will protect you. However, if you go against the laws of this covenant, then you will be punished. You will be disciplined. And so in all six of these prayers, Nehemiah is recalling that promise that God made with them. Four of these prayers are positive, asking God to remember that Nehemiah was fighting for the holiness of the Jews and fighting to lead them according to God's law. And then two of the prayers, 
Two of these remembrance prayers are negative prayers, asking God to remember how certain people led the Jews away from God's law. All right, so we're bringing all this together into our application. All right, so our application we always get from our definition of a disciple, which we get from what passage? Matthew 4.19, where Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fish for people. And from that, we get our three indicators of a disciple. What are our three indicators of a disciple? Knowing, being, and doing. That one should be pretty easy. They're right there at the beginning of our application phrases. So the knowing is where the disciple has accepted salvation through Jesus and the lordship of Jesus. It's where Jesus says, follow me. And then the being is where the, the disciple is constantly being transformed, being remade into the image of God, where we are being sanctified. And that's where Jesus says, I will make. So follow me and I will make. And then the last one is the doing. This is where the disciple is doing the work of Jesus. This is where Jesus says that you will be fishing for people. All right, so our three application points. The first one is to know God's word. It's hard to follow Jesus if we don't know what he's saying. So to know God's word. Nehemiah knew God's word well enough to know how to apply it to the problems in Jerusalem. Even though it may not have, uh, even though the Mosaic law didn't speak specifically to each and every one of these instances, he was able to know the law well enough to say, that's a clear violation of God's law, or that's a clear violation of God's law, and this is what we're going to do to fix it. He knew it well enough that he can make those immediate decisions. He knew God's word so well that he was able to use it to guide his leadership over the Jews. Nehemiah knew what God said was holy and what was not. For us, where we have greater access to the Bible than ever before, unfortunately, this has not led to greater biblical proficiency. We have great access to the Bible, so let's use that to become the most biblically proficient culture in human history. That happens only through reading Scripture, studying Scripture, and applying Scripture. And that takes us to our next application point. It's to be a problem solver. Be a problem solver by applying Scripture. Right? Reading and studying Scripture is not merely for head knowledge. It's not merely for what goes on up here, but for what we do with our lives and what we do with our hands and what we do with our feet and what we do with our money. That head knowledge is important, but without letting it sink into your heart and out into your actions, you have failed. We must apply God's word to our lives. When God speaks to us through his word, we take action because of it. We also allow other Christians, to, or other faithful Christians, especially those in our church family, to speak into our lives, to encourage us, and even to correct us according to scripture. Be a problem solver by applying God's word to your life. And our final application is to depend, uh, the doing part is to depend on Jesus. As we continue to study and apply scripture, we will find that we can never live up to God's standard of holiness. But that's why he sent Jesus to die for our sin. We will fail, but he is perfect. Through placing our faith in him for salvation, he takes our punishment and gives us his righteousness. Through our personal effort, we will find that we continually fail at applying God's word. Right? So that surrendering to Jesus, it's not just for salvation. We continue to surrender to Jesus for sanctification. We must depend on him for our holiness. We surrender to him. We surrender our sins to him. And we turn back toward him each and every day. Sometimes multiple times a day. Seems like sometimes every other step we have to repent from some sin. Because we continually fail. But through depending on him... We can uh, be sanctified. We can be made more holy, depending on Jesus, applying his word, studying his word. So our no is to know God's word. The, do, or the B is to be a problem solver by applying God's word. 
And then the do is to depend on Jesus because we know we're going to fail, but he is always faithful to provide for us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, God, again, I thank you for the truth that is in your word. Lord, I pray that through this study that we can be made more like you, that we won't just know your word. Well, yes, God, we want to know your word, but we don't want to just know your word. We want to apply your word to our lives so that we can be made more holy. But God, we know we're going to fail, so help us to depend on you every step of the way. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So we've come to our point of response. You can respond right where you're seated, or you can come to the front and pray at the cross, or you can pray with me. Um, But please do not ignore the calling of the Holy Spirit this morning. Thank you again for listening to this week's message. If you would like to know more information about our church, please visit VictoryBaptistHopeMills.com or Facebook.com slash VBCHopeMills. I would also like to ask that you rate and review this podcast. And if you found this sermon helpful, please share it.